Well, good evening. It's great to be here with you. As Parker mentioned last week, we are reading through a group of psalms that more than likely were used to celebrate the Passover for the nation of Israel. And so these psalms would have been sung around the table, perhaps, as families would gather together, uh, awaiting the feast of the Passover. These are equivalent to Christmas hymns for us, detailing the most important characteristics of what it meant to be an Israelite. In the same way that Joy to the World details the triumphant entry of Jesus into the world, this psalm that we're going to look at tonight, it details the triumphant work of God to redeem the nation of Israel. Within our psalm, we're going to see, we're going to be reminded of the great saving work of God. But in order to do that, we need the help of the Spirit. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us tonight. That you would guide us as we seek to learn and grow, following your Son, depending on him, not ourselves. Lord, send your Spirit. Open our eyes and our ears, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee, O Jordan, that you turn back, O mountains, that you skip? like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. All right, so as a child, uh, I struggled for a long time to learn how to read. It was perhaps my greatest difficulty as a child, and you can imagine, um, as perhaps some of your parents in here, having a second grader that still cannot read. But I remember almost distinctly the first time that I really enjoyed reading, the first time that I was immersed in a story that just captivated me. Night after night, my mom and dad, they would read to me the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you perhaps have read this. And I remember being so captivated by this story, so, so taken to a distant land, so excited night after night to get a new chapter. One of the books, The Silver Chair, deals with new characters entering Narnia and being given a rescue mission by Aslan, the great lion of Narnia. And, and listen to what he says. He says, stand still, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. And I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. And as you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. 
Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. This psalm that we're looking at tonight, much like this message from Aslan, is a call to remember the great things that God has done for us. And we need this reminder. We need to be reminded in the midst of a busy life, we need to remember God's redemption, his power, his provision in times of need. We need this psalm to remind us of his purpose in saving us, that he brings life out of nothing. One commentator I read that was commenting on this, he he noticed that God is transforming what is least promising into a place of plenty and a source of joy. God's transforming the least promising places in our lives to places of plenty and sources of joy. His great power over all things is being used to transform these places. And so tonight, we're, gonna, we're going to reflect and remember God's salvation. We're going to do that by looking at three things. We're going to look at the who of salvation, the how of salvation, and the why of salvation. And so first, remember who saves you. And this is just a general theme throughout this whole psalm. This psalm is obsessed with the who of salvation. Who saves his people? Because we are so quick to forget, we must remember this. And so from the very beginning, it's, this psalm is interested in who does this. It describes the leaving of Egypt, the crossing of the waters, Mount Sinai, the provision in the desert. The psalm's describing the exodus, the greatest, the single greatest event in the history of the Israelites. It's the defining event for them. And so notice in the psalm the play on words that's there. There's a play from the very beginning. It builds interest as it goes. Who brought them out of Egypt? Who causes the mountains to skip like rams? Who is it? Until finally, in verse 7, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. It tells us of this great and mighty power of God, of his glory, that the earth just it can't even contain itself when he shows up. It cannot contain itself when his presence draws near. And time and time again in this psalm, there's one key element being communicated. It isn't Israel. It isn't Moses. It isn't Aaron that the earth trembles at. It's God. God brings about the trembling through his great power over creation. The author of the psalm wants us to be clear that God is the one bringing about salvation for his people. It's God that brings them out of oppression and bondage and slavery. He parts the waters. He makes safe passage. He saves them from Pharaoh. He provides for them in the desert. It reminds us that our story is dependent on him. There is none like God. I'm reminded of a scene from Harry Potter. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, so I love reading Harry Potter. I'm reminded of a scene from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix where these students have snuck their way into this ministry of magic. It'd kind of be like sneaking into the Pentagon, right? You probably wouldn't want your, like, 16-year-old going there. Like, it's top-secret clearance. And they realize all of a sudden they've been trapped. They've been tricked. And it's not going very well. And suddenly, slowly, they're starting to get captured. They're starting to lose this fight against the enemy. And they're starting to get scared. And that you really, as the reader, you don't know what's going to happen. You really think this might be the end. But suddenly, hope. Dumbledore, the greatest magician of all time, shows up. And there's immediately great fear and trembling for everybody. 
trembling of, of happiness and joy for Harry and his friends at this great wizard coming to their rescue, and trembling with fear and chaos at the Death Eaters as they quickly try to get out of his way. And that's what the psalm is communicating. The power of God, the immense majesty, the control over creation, it calls us to tremble at his presence. His power is directed towards saving his people. Despite this, I think, despite this amazing resume that we see with God, I think there, there are a lot of ways that we often fail to remember the who of salvation. And I think we do that in two ways primarily. We do that in times of plenty and in times of want. And if you think about Israel for a second, their story, don't they do this? Don't they fail constantly to remember the who of salvation? As an example, it's not long after crossing the Red Sea, what happens? The golden calf, where they bow down and they start worshiping an idol. Constant infighting and doubts about God, grumbles and complaints, and this doesn't even include the constant events found in the books of Judges through Malachi. Constantly, they forget the who. In fact, God actually knows that they're going to do this. In fact, in Deuteronomy 8.11, listen to what he says. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. As our wealth grows, we tend to forget our need of salvation. We look at our morality, we look at our success, we look at our wealth, and we think, I don't need salvation. And this psalm reminds us, no. The waves are not parting for you. The mountains are not running from you. They're running from the great and awesome power of God who terrifies them, who commands them with his very presence to move. But we also do this in times of want. When the waves of chaos hit in life, we wonder, God, are you actually, are you powerful enough to handle this? Can you stop this? Can you deal with this? Are you there? We forget when life feels most lost, when it feels most chaotic, that God's actually there in the chaos working. When life feels least promising, he's there making the least promising places, places of joy. And we actually see this at work. If we take time to think about the Gospels, we see this, that in the darkest, most difficult scene found in the Bible, what do we have? The midst of chaos, Jesus on the cross, bringing about our exodus, our freedom from sin and from slavery. The earth trembles at his redemptive work. It can't contain itself when God shows up and his redemption is on full display. But not only does this psalm remind us of the who, it also reminds us of the how. See, forgetting how God saves us, it's going to have profound implications on how we view our relationship with God. So because we're quick to forget, we have to remember how God saves us. And there are two things I want you to see for this. One is implicit in the text and one is explicit. So first, remember the context of this psalm. What's going on here? They're about to partake in the Passover feast. They're 
smelling the lamb right now. They're remembering how they came out of Egypt to begin with. And I can promise you one of the things that they're reflecting on, one of the things they're thinking about, is that if it wasn't for the lamb, someone in their family would be dead. That if there wasn't a lamb there, if there wasn't a substitute, there would be no deliverance from death, bondage, and slavery. Those things wouldn't happen. That's the context. It's implicit in these psalms, the memory and celebration of the lamb's blood that covered them so that they wouldn't die, so that they could escape from slavery. Substitution brings them out safely. But there's, rather, there's, a, there's a rather explicit example here too. Look at verse 7 through 8 and notice it references God bringing water out of the rock. What is that about? What is, what is the author referring to there? Well, we have this passage found in Exodus 17 that details this for us, right? It details the Israelites wandering through the desert and they come to bicker and despise and hate each other. They're ready to, to kill Moses. They don't have water and they're thirsty. They're confused. Why would God bring us out of Egypt just to kill us by thirst? Why would he do that? And Exodus tells us that God tells Moses, take your staff and behold, I will stand before you on the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out. And think about this, the staff. If you're Moses and God tells you to take the staff, that is the judgment staff of God. That staff was used to bring about the plagues on Egypt. The wrath and judgment of God was used with that staff on Pharaoh and his people. And God tells you to take that staff and to go and to strike the rock. And if I'm Moses, if it were me, I would be thinking, God's done with these people. This is the judgment staff of God, and he wants me to use this on his people. But what happens? God stands on the rock, and Moses strikes it, and water comes out. It's not just one of the many miracles that's included in this psalm just for fun. It's actually included here because it's a reminder of how God saves. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.4, reflecting on Exodus 17, that the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. How does God bring about his salvation? How does he accomplish his purposes? He takes our judgment... He takes the judgment of his people and he gives them living water. Least promising places, he brings about exceeding joy. But we fail to remember this often, I think. And um, recently I was reading an article, an interview with Tom Hanks. This was a fascinating interview. He had recently just picked a, a part to play in a movie. And he talks about wanting this part because he, he saw himself in this character. He saw himself in the, in the part that he was about to play, and the character was full of doubt. That's what he saw. Listen as he talks about acting. He describes it by saying, no matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? And when are they going to discover that I am, in fact, a fraud and take everything away from me? Despite having won two Academy Awards and appearing in more than 70 films and TV shows, Tom Hanks describes his own doubting of his abilities as this. He says it's a high-wire act that we all walk. There are days when I know that 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to have to deliver some degree of emotional goods. And if I can't do that, that means I'm going to have to fake it. And if I fake it, that means they might catch me. And if they catch me, 
it'll be doomsday. Man, I love that honesty. I love the honesty that he describes there of being on a high wire act, of being scared to death that someone's going to see you finally as who you really are, and that it's going to be doomsday. But even more than that, I think, I think that about God sometimes, that he's actually going to truly see me as who I am, as a fake, as a hypocrite, and I'm finally going to fall, and it's going to be doomsday. We forget the how. See, if we start to think that God saves us, only if we're good or we've done enough, we've missed it. We've, we've turned to idolatry. We're now looking at ourselves instead of looking to God. And I don't know about you, but I do this all the time. I forget that God doesn't love me for what I do. His love isn't dependent on me being a successful parent, thank goodness. A friend, a spouse, an employee, or even the lack of any of those things. His love for me doesn't depend on those. It's not dependent on that. And we start to think that if we don't perform, if we don't live up to expectations, if we disappoint, we'll be rejected. And it'll be doomsday. But thank goodness he doesn't save us based off of what we do. That's not the how of salvation. The how of salvation is that God takes our judgment and gives us life in place. How does he do that? Jesus is the rock that was struck, by the desert, that was struck in the desert. He takes our judgment. The psalm ends by reminding them that their hope is in a God that will be their substitute, that will take their judgment, that will give them living water. But why? Why, we, why would he do this? And so lastly, we need to remember why. Because we're so quick to forget, we must remember why God has saved us. We need to remember the purpose. And I think in our day and age, we think of the word freedom. We think maybe we've been freed from slavery, freed from sin, from bondage or tyranny of the devil, of the world, and of the flesh. But we often stop there. Freedom as Americans is kind of an end in itself. The fourth is coming up, and we're going to celebrate freedom. But for the Israelites, freedom was not the end. The end was worshiping God. The end was being able to go and to worship God. That was the point. And we see that in verse 1 and 2. If you look, it says that God frees them so that they can be his temple, his dominion. As I hear that, it sounds strange to modern ears, doesn't it? That God, God wants us to be his temple, to be his dominion. What is, what is being communicated? What are they talking about? We hear temple, and we think of the building. God wants me to be a building. God wants me to be a place. That's not the point. The purpose of this, of this language is to communicate what the temple holds. God wants to dwell with you. God has freed us because he wants to be with us. It's his dwelling place. He's rescued us from slavery. He's freed us so that we can go and dwell with him. Robert mentioned this morning the Emmanuel, right? The principle that that God wants to be our God so that we can be his people. It's the, it's the central principle of the covenant of grace. God desires to dwell with us. And so does this infinite God, this God of infinite power and glory and majesty, is he a God in your mind that actually wants to dwell with you? Is he a God that, that wants to, to be with you? Do, you? do you see that? This God that the whole earth trembles at, can you, do you imagine that he actually desires to be around you? 
there's a sense where the psalm ends calling us to join the earth, to tremble at the awesome power of God, tremble at his great presence, his great redemption. But tremble doesn't always mean fear in the way that we think of it. It can. There's also a joyful trembling that the psalmist describes, a trembling that recognizes the holiness, the majesty, the power of God, a trembling that sees that that power that he has is amazing and we're in awe of it because of the immense mercy and grace that he chooses to use that for our salvation. It's directed, it's intent on redeeming his people. He longs to dwell with us. I remember on my wedding day having a sense of this joyful trembling, right? As the doors opened and my knees started shaking, my hands started shaking, sweating, trying to remember, don't lock your knees, don't lock your knees. Joyful trembling. That's what the psalmist calls us to. And I think there's a sense for some of us, though, we hear this. We hear this call that that God desires to dwell with us, and we think this can't be. This can't be. We look at our life, and we think, I'm a wreck. I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of this God. Why would he want me? Doesn't, Doesn't he know what I'm like? Doesn't he know what I've done? We can listen to our own shame speaking telling us we aren't worthy, we can hear our own hearts communicating that there's no way God, the Holy One, would want to be near you. I'm reminded of Jesus in John 4, at a well meeting a woman whose life can easily be described as the least promising place. Her heart was hard as a rock, dry as can be. She's broken and outcast, rejected, embarrassed, and ashamed of who she is. But Jesus full of grace and truth, speaks to her. He longs to show her mercy. He's full of compassion for her. And he tells her that he can give her living water, that he can transform her life, that he can change her understanding of reality. Jesus, the creator and king of all things, takes that which is least promising, our lives, our sin, our addictions, and our shame, and he makes them places of pure joy in life because because he is the place of pure joy in life. And that is good news for us to remember. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for our lives to be described as places where you dwell. We long to be people be renewed image bearers, reflecting your glory and power. Yet if we're honest, we often forget these important truths. We forget, we turn to idols, we become overwhelmed by our sin and our shame. Lord, tonight, this week, this season, remind us of your great love for us. Remind us of your desire to dwell with us, your desire to save us. And we pray this, Lord, in your son's name, amen. Let's respond by standing and singing, let us love and sing in wonder.